Um, I've talked several times uh, up here about my kind of flexible uh, relationship with time. Um, time is a very fluid concept for me. Um, it's not my favorite personality trait that I possess, but uh, a couple weeks ago I had one of those weeks where several things that I'd been scheduling for like a month all came down to the wire. Like, and, and, uh, and maybe for the first time ever, none of that was on me. None of that was my fault. I'd done everything I could. I'd planned everything I could and still uh, everything was come down the wire and it was dependent on somebody else to finish their job. And, uh, and, uh, and it was excruciating. Um, it was, uh, maybe for the first time in a long time that I felt time, like that I could feel it ticking. And it, I felt every second ticking by. And it was, it was like having my head in a vice. If that's the way some of you people who can feel time live, I pray for you. That's horrible, horrible way to live. Um, that's not something I generally do. Normally I have no idea that time is passing. Like when I'm preaching up here, I never know how long I went until I go home and check the tape and like watch the little counter at the bottom. It could be 15 minutes. It could be three hours. I wouldn't know the difference. It, I don't even feel it passing. I'm just talking. Um, in fact, last week, uh, I told you that God like shifted my message the last second. I wrote a message on Friday night and then late Saturday night, God changed that. And, and so I scrapped the first message and had to start over. So I wound up preaching off a really rough outline. I didn't, uh, and, and it kind of reminded me that, um, and incidentally, today's message isn't the one I wrote last week. We are going to, we are going to get to that one. We are going to get to that one. It's, it's a good message, but, um, but, uh, but I was preaching off of an outline and it reminded me that the reason I stopped doing that, the reason I went to manuscripting my messages and actually writing them is because when I go off an outline, I have no clue how long the message is going to be. Like just no clue at all. At least when I manuscript it, I know I got to aim for about so many words if I want to finish it in under three hours. And so um, I uh, no, the new people are like, what? <laughs> no, 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 no. Kidding. Um yeah, it reminded me that, that I that I have to do that because I can't feel uh, time passing. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, I did get to feel that. I got to feel the passage of time, and uh, and uh, I decided that as as inconvenient as my flexible relationship with time is, I prefer that over the alternative. You, those of you who who live in time, man, that's awful. I pray for you. Um, and. And all of this got me thinking about time. Uh, about a year ago, I read this book called The, the Ruthless o- Elimination of Hurry. And I had to go back and dig into that book because it had some pretty fun, like, nerd stuff. Because um, we all know that the world is sped up to a, you know, frenetic pace. Uh, most people can feel that in your bones. And if you can't, all the time, you can definitely feel it on the rush hour drive to work. Like, you can feel... You know, the, the pace of life has gotten out of control. But as far back as 200 BC, 200 years before Jesus, uh, people were actually complaining about the new technology that was, that was messing, um, things up. Uh, the Roman playwright, uh, Plautus, um, turned some of his anger into poetry. He said, the gods confound the man who first found out how to distinguish hours. Confound him too who in this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small portions. So next time you're, you're running late or something, you can quote, you know, the 200 BC Roman poet. God confound the man. Um, he was complaining because somebody had found a way to break his, 
his day up into chunks with a, with a sundial. Like, to, look how fast that shadow's moving. I feel rushed all the time. You know, that's, they felt it way back then. Uh, then we fast forward a little bit. The, the well-meaning monks, kind of our spiritual ancestor, ancestors in, in Christian discipline, um, uh, that kind of shaped a lot of Western society, honestly, in the 6th century, St. Benedict ordered the monastery around seven prayers a day, seven prayer sessions. So the bell would ring seven times a day to signal all the monks to prayer. And, uh, and people started complaining about, you know, you could feel the day going by. Every time a bell rung, you knew, like, oh man, are we already on third bell? Gosh, I'm so far behind. Um, but most historians point to 1370 as the turning point for the West's relationship to time. Um, uh, this is the year that the first public clock tower went up in Cologne, Germany. Um, before that, time was natural. It was linked to the rotation of the earth on its axis, the four seasons. You went to bed with the moon and you got up with the sun. Days were long and busy in the summer and short and slow in the winter. There were rhythms to the day and even to the year. Um, according to the French medievalist Jacques Lagoff, um, life was dominated by agrarian rhythms, free of haste, careless of exactitude, and unconcerned by productivity. Um, doesn't that sound amazing? Um, but the clock changed all of that. Um, it created artificial time. Um, the, the slog of the nine to five, uh, took over from the, the yearly calendar. We stopped listening to our bodies and started raising when the alarms told us we had to. Um, not, uh, uh, not when we felt rested, but when we were told it's time to get up. We became more efficient, yes, but also more machine-like and less human. When the sun sets our rhythms of work and rest, um, we did this under the control of God, but the clock is controlled by the employer, um, and it's a far more demanding master. In 1879, Edison created the light bulb, um, which made it possible to stay up past sunset. Um, and this is crazy, but I looked this up. Um, in Edison's day, the average person slept about 11 hours a night. Um, you... Uh, 11. Isn't that crazy? Um, so when you read the biographies of like some of the great Christian people throughout history, uh, like St. Teresa of Avila and John Wesley and, and Charles Spurgeon, all ro- said they rose at four in the morning to, to prayer. And you read that and they're like, man, these people were so much more devoted than I am. And that's probably true, but they were waking up after about nine hours of sleep. You went to bed at seven o'clock on average back then. Um, and so, you know, it's a little different waking up at four to pray when you've had nine hours of sleep. That doesn't sound nearly as bad. Um, but in America now, we're down to, on average, if you include everybody, which includes, you know, the grandparents that are going to bed at seven, you know, the average is still um, about seven hours of sleep. We're down to seven hours of sleep. Two years, full, two full years shorter than about a century ago. It's no wonder we're exhausted all the time. Um, but... As we dive into our 13th week of this year's summer series, um, we're actually um, aren't talking about time as much as we are um, something that time creates. And uh, something that I think is, an, is a, uh, the, the opposite of it is a really valuable commodity of the kingdom of God. Um, and it's something that I think we have, uh, with our fixation on time, have lost uh, control. It's been stolen from us. And that's uh, the idea of peace. I feel like we have lost peace in our fixation on time. Um, and this is probably one of the most fundamental concepts 
in the Bible. And I believe one of the most misunderstood and underappreciated biblical promises um, of peace. In our world today, peace really isn't expected anymore. We don't, we don't, uh, we all say we want it, but we don't expect it. We assume life to be harried and stressful and chaotic. In fact, we, we get a little nervous if it isn't, you know, it's, it's become a badge of honor when somebody's like, how are you doing? Oh, busy, 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 you know, and like, we would almost be embarrassed. How are you doing? You know, just been lounging, taking it easy. I took a lot of Sabbath this week. It's been a good week. You know, we would, I think it's like we'd be embarrassed to say that, even though it's biblical. You know, we want people to think we're, we're busy. Man, I got a lot going on. I'm moving, moving, moving. Uh, and this really bugs me because we barely seem to notice that this is kind of a big deal in the Bible. Um, there's some really conditional statements in the scripture um, that we have a tendency to like wiggle out from under. Um, and I think we do it all the time. Uh, let me give you a quick for instance. Matthew 17:20. It says, I tell you the truth. If you had faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. Has anybody ever tried this? Come on, be honest. Have you tried it? Has anybody tried it? I tried it. Yeah, like that. I think most of us do. Like, move! Like, didn't move. Um, when I was pretty new in the faith and believed that absolutely anything that the Bible said was real and would happen, um, I gave it a shot. You know, I was out in the, I was out walking one day and there, and it was a, I live in Kansas, so it was more of a hill. So I don't know if that changes the scripture. You know, maybe you can move mountains, not hills. I don't know. But, um, but I tried, and I felt like I had a mustard seed of faith, you know, but it didn't move. Nothing changed. And so I started to asking all the smart and more experienced people in my world why this verse wouldn't work for me. You know, and I got, uh, I got all kinds of answers, everything from, well, your faith has to line up with the will of God, you know, which makes sense. Or faith's a gift from God. If, give, if God wanted you to move the mountain, he would have given you the faith to move it. Or even you can't make a formula out of prayer. Um, God always defies formulas. And, and I don't really have a problem with any of those answers, except none of them seem to fit the genuine, simple way, kind of black and white way that Jesus made his statement. If you have faith like a mustard seed, the mountain will move. Jesus just says, if, that's it, tiny bit of faith, this will happen. No qualifiers, no prerequisites, just the tiniest bit of faith. And it was years before I came to the conclusion that the reason the mountain didn't move is because I must not have had a mustard seed of faith. That it wasn't it wasn't some big fancy theological thing. If that verse is true, then I didn't have a mustard seed of faith. It's that simple. I was I might have been playing games with God, but but this is a black and white thing. We can try to wiggle out from under it with theological. Well, you have to understand that God. Does, no, no, no. It says if I did, this would have happened. So I didn't because it didn't. It's that simple. Let's do another one. Uh, uh, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for what He's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Paul gives a pretty blunt command. Don't worry about anything. Don't. This is imperative language. It's a command. But Paul also knows you can't command a negative that's like a, a rule of logic. You can't. I, if I say close your eyes and whatever you do, don't think of a pink elephant. First thing to pop in your head is the pink elephant. You can't command a negative. And so Paul tells him what to do. He says, uh, you know, don't worry, but in, but understand that I understand you don't have a control over that. So pray and show gratitude. Pray and show gratitude. 
If you do those things, this will happen. Period. And so, this, so he gives us what the outcome. You will experience God's peace. If you pray and show gratitude, you will experience God's peace. Now, it's pretty black and white. Um, and I don't want to make anyone feel guilty who struggles with anxiety or, or things like that because I struggle with this all the time. I'm a, being a preacher is being a professional hypocrite. That's like what you do. Because I have to preach what's in the Bible, not what I'm good at. If I preach what I'm good at, we run out of stuff to talk about real fast. <laughs> like, so I have to preach stuff that the Bible says, not stuff that I'm good at. Um, but, uh, but, but the scripture says, if you do this, if you pray, and if you show gratitude, you will experience peace, period. Isaiah seems to confirm it. It says, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. So if we don't experience peace, uh, then we didn't pray and show gratitude in whatever way Paul is saying. Our thoughts aren't truly fixed on him, according to Isaiah. Now, I don't say this to condemn anybody in any way. Uh, but I do think we have this habit of of going to the Scripture and making them fit our experience rather than just going, hey, this is what the Scripture says, and so my experience has to fit what it says. I'd much rather say I don't have a mustard seed of faith uh, to move a mountain uh, or say that I, I, I'm not doing a good job of praying and showing gratitude because I'm not experiencing, experiencing peace than I am changing what the Bible says so that I can feel good about myself. I, I don't feel any undue pressure you know, to, to, um, or, or guilt because I can't move the mountain or because I experience anxiety. It's just one more reason why I need the grace of God. Just like anything else, you know, we have a tendency to, to, you know, pick on particular sins and ostracize particular people because, you know, we don't like their sins, but we walk around with anxiety even though we're commanded not to have it. And we walk around not moving mountains even though we're told we can. Um, it was just tells me I have to stand in the grace of God no matter what. Like, even in the little things, uh, we depend on the grace of God. So I'm forced to combat my worry and my anxiety with the grace of God and trust that my inability to obey Scripture in this case is covered by Jesus' sacrifice on my behalf. On my behalf. Um, but over and over again, the Scripture, um, we're offered this peace. We're commanded to have this peace. It's this precious commodity that's supposed to be part of the kingdom of God, and yet today it's sorely lacking. In our culture, I read some stats this week and the growth rates of the pharmaceutical market for drugs that are specifically designed to, to combat our lack of peace, um, they say will be a $20 billion industry in a couple of years. $20 billion a year industry um, spent just to combat our lack of peace. Currently, 3% of our population is medicated to cope with stress. Um, of our total population, if you go to the age bracket of 13 to 18, that's 32%. 32% of our young people are medicated to deal with stress. We're a generation that struggles to find peace, and I think part of the reason is because we're looking for the wrong things. I don't think we understand biblical peace. Usually when we seek peace, we're really seeking an answer to, to a different question. We're having financial struggles, and we're sleep, losing sleep over it, and we're anxious and stressed, and so we pray for peace God, I just want peace. What we really mean is we want an answer to the financial situation. We want God to provide for us, and then we'll have peace. Our marriage is on the rocks, and we have no peace, and we pray for peace that passes understanding. What we really mean is God heal my marriage, um, and then I'll have peace. You know, we need healing in our bodies, and we're crazy stressed out about it. We ask for peace, but what we're really asking for 
is healing. And please, there's not wrong to ask for any of those things. I think God meets our financial needs miraculously. He heals our marriages. I've seen it done and I rejoice. He heals our bodies. The Bible tells us that, that He will do all those things, but those are completely separate from peace. Peace, as described in the Scripture, is absurd. It's ineffable. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, we talked a couple weeks ago about the upside-down kingdom. That is peace. Biblical peace is completely upside-down and crazy. It's like we talked last week about gleaning, standing in a barren field and yet finding sustenance and provision. Peace is like that. We think it comes from no more conflict. If we could just get rid of all this conflict, we would have peace. But Jesus went to his trials and even his death in the midst of the gravest conflict you could face, like a lamb to the slaughter, the Bible says, silent and peaceful. We think peace comes when there's no more storm, and yet Jesus slept on the boat while his disciples panicked and bailed water like crazy. We think peace comes when we can finally get our to-do list done and sit down for a minute But Jesus stopped in the middle of a procession to heal a dying girl because a woman had touched his robe and he wanted to hear her story. And he he had the margin. He made the time to, in the middle of his to-do list, he stopped and dealt with somebody and heard her because he had peace. All these attempts to find peace are really just attempts to live in a world that we believe would be peaceful. It's like the time... (laughs) there was a huge hole in the road and and the government was trying to figure out what to do with it. People keep hitting the hole and getting in wrecks and people were even dying. And so the government said, we need to park an ambulance next to the hole. That way if somebody hits, they can get picked up immediately and run to the hospital. And somebody was like, yeah, but but what if while an ambulance is taking somebody, somebody else hits it? We needed three or four, maybe ten ambulances sitting there. And they were like, gas is expensive, that's ridiculous. Why don't we just build a hospital next to the hole? That way people can immediately go there. And finally the president was like, you know, that's stupid. All this stuff is way too expensive. We'll just fill in the hole and dig it next to the hospital that already exists. That's, that's us with peace. We're, we're trying so hard to fill it and we're not even looking at the real problem. Stupid joke, I know. But, you know, it's a pastor thing. It's fun to crack jokes about the government only because it's kind of painfully true. But the fact is we tend to be just as illogical with our desires to find peace. We're, we're trying to come up with workarounds so we don't actually have to have real peace in the midst of life. We think peace comes when our circumstances are just right. But the Bible tells a different story. According to peace, shalom in the Old Testament, it's a state of relating to God despite our circumstances. According to Scripture, peace means a sense of wholeness and completeness, soundness, health, safety, prosperity. No matter what's going on in our outside circumstances, we experience that kind of wholeness. And this morning, rather than just kind of fixating on a theological definition of peace that's kind of sterile and maybe a little stiff for Monday morning use, I thought we could do a case study, kind of look at, at, a, at the kind of peace we're talking about in story form, but that we tend to miss when in our own life experiences in our chaotic world. So I'm going to be reading from the book of Acts chapter 12, if you want to join me there. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. But it says this, About that time, Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with the sword. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. 
This took place during the Passover celebration. Then he imprisoned him, placed him under a guard of four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for a public trial after the Passover. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. The night before Peter was placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, Get up, or quick, get up. The chains fell off his wrist, and then the the angel told him, Get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me. The angels ordered, the angels ordered. So Peter left the cell, followed the angel, and all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street and the angel suddenly left him. Peter, Peter finally came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent me his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. Then, he, then he real, when he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door in the, in the gate and the servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed that instead of, so, so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter is standing at the door. You're out of your mind, they said. Uh, when she insisted, they decided it must be his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. When they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers what happened, he said, and then he went to another place. This is the word of the Lord. Now, let me start by saying this is not a peaceful time. Like, we have to start, like, let's stage this for a minute. From Peter's sermon at the temple, the very first time he heals somebody publicly, things have not been peaceful. Peter and John get arrested, they're tried, they're beaten, they're told never to preach in the name of Jesus again. He obviously disobeys that order and continues to obey God instead. Not long later, Stephen, one of the first kind of new hires to the church who was hired to feed the poor, he was killed. And it set off a huge spree of persecution that scattered the church everywhere. They had to flee to other cities to keep from being killed or arrested. Um, And they talked about Jesus wherever they went. After Stephen was killed, um, and that whole persecution plays out, Herod decides to get involved, and he kills James. Kind of sounds like just for the fun of it. And then he saw that it made everybody happy, and so he's like, hey, this is kind of cool. I can get popular doing this. And so he arrests Peter. So pretty much from the moment Jesus ascends, things have not been especially peaceful. Um, And this is encouraging because we have a tendency to look at our world, um, which is a mess, don't get me wrong, but we have this tendency to to look at it and, and see the the chaos and how insane it is and and we feel like there's more pressure on the church now than there um, has ever been and surely Jesus is coming back soon. But if you look in the scripture and in most of the world today, honestly, um, the church has survived in some chaotic environments. The church has survived in places where there is no peace and not only survived but thrived. And the church finds peace in the midst of those horrible environments. And what takes... Uh, But when we get back to this story this morning, Peter is arrested for no reason other than the fact that Herod saw that it made some people happy. And so he grabs Peter. Uh, Peter's put in prison. 
And, uh, and back in his day, that was not a very luxurious environment. Prisons were pretty terrible. James um, was just killed. And so Peter's dealing with the grief of losing you know, one of the, the church leaders. And Luke, who is writing this account, somehow knows that uh, Herod is, is planning to kill Peter. That, that this trial, um, because you can have a trial anytime. You can't, you can't kill somebody on the Passover. And so the fact that he wants to wait till Passover's over means things do not look great for Peter. And so, um, so Herod, you know, his plans weren't super secretive. Peter knows his death is imminent. He's arrested. He's in a terrible situation. Um, and yet, God obviously doesn't see the imminent death of Peter. Sends an angel. Um, to deliver him, which is a great miracle story. And if we uh, feel like we're in prison, this is your story. Man, I don't care if it's your health, your finances, your marriage, your sin pattern, your depression, what's going on. This is an amazing story for the way I'm talking last second miracles save us. Do not let this story slip away. But what I love about this story is the peace that's in it. And this is, it says, uh, the night before Peter was placed on trial, he was asleep fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Um, others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly there was a bright light in the cell, and the angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him uh, and said, uh, Get up, or quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrist. And the angel said, Get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Um, now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. Um, because the, and the real power is a little bit subtle, so we're going to have to dig it out together. But the first indication that Peter is experiencing peace uh, that does not fit his circumstances is that he's asleep. Who does that? He was asleep. Peter was in a place right. He was asleep. What is, what is the last thing you lost sleep over? What is the last thing you laid awake at night and worried about? Were you chained to two guards with your death imminent the next day? Probably not. Because the, this is the night before Peter's trial and he's sleeping like a baby. Angel had to kick him to wake him up. And, and, and what's the crazy part is because some of us can sleep in any environment. So you, I'm going to give Peter that much. I have this, I have this thing. There's actually a name for it. I can't remember what it's called. I looked it up one time, but emotional stress makes me sleepy, which is horrible because, because, and I mean, it's like a drug because I can stay awake for the stupidest reasons. I can get caught in a TV show and stay up till 3 o'clock in the morning binging episodes, right? But the second Esther wants to talk about a relationship, I'm like... Which does not send the best message in the world. You know, when your wife wants to talk about your relationship and she knows you can stay up for anything and then all of a sudden you're like, I'm trying really hard, babe. I just can't say... There's a name for it. It's a condition. I have a condition. <laughs> but Peter... Does not add. So maybe Peter's emotionally stressed and that's why he falls asleep. Maybe he's got that same thing. So we'll give him a little bit of credit. But I don't think that's the case and here's why. Then the angel told him, get dressed and put on your sandals. And this is easy to miss, but put yourself in Peter's place. You get arrested just because this crazy leader wants to make some people who hate you happy. There's no other reason. And as soon as the Passover's over, you know what's in store for you. You're thrown in jail. You're chained to guards. And what do you do at bedtime? I spend the, the, the night in the hospital several times with people who are there. And usually the best you do is find a chair and just kind of lay over a little bit. You know, you might even, if you're feeling weird, kick your shoes off. But that even feels a little bit strange. I've slept with my shoes on in the hospital 
a lot. You basically just find a place to kind of lay back just a little bit. But when the angel shows up, Peter has to get dressed. Think about that for a second. That means at bedtime, he got undressed for bed. He like got, he took off his robe and probably rolled it up as a pillow so he could snuggle into the floor a little bit and went to sleep. The angel had to stand there and wait. Like, I've never been in this kind of situation and been like, I guess it's bedtime. I hate sleeping with my clothes on. I'm going to get up. He got comfortable. And it's one thing to sleep the night before your execution rather than pace your cell or pray all night or make confessions because you know this is probably, you know, or have your last meal or whatever because you know this is probably the end of it. But to actually sleep is weird. And not just that, but to, to get undressed for bed. That just feels so bizarre to me. Roll up your robes as a pillow and, and go to sleep. That is a crazy level of peace. That is a weird level of peace, if we're honest. I tease my son Matthew all the time because he has like no sense. We're on this job and don't think less of me, but several of my sons do not like roofs. And we were we had torn the roof off this house. We'd taken it up another story and we had put the roof back on. And I'm pretty comfortable on roofs, and so I like messing with my kids when we're on the roof. I'll, I'll pull their foot out from under them a little bit. And, they, and, and Elijah, my, my third son, we were up on a roof. We're in a valley, like a pretty good valley. You, you would have had to have tried to fall off this roof in this valley. And he's walking up it, and I grab his foot, and he literally like falls down and goes, ah, like this involuntary groan. He hates roofs so bad. That it, it hit this like deep primal phobia, you know, and, and it was so like guttural that I was like, dude, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? And, and, uh, and like maybe 30 minutes later, Matthew, my second son, who fears nothing, um, we're goofing around and he throws something at me and I kind of do this, you know, to like I'm going to come and get him and he tries to take off on the side of the roof. Now this is the dangerous part and his feet slip and, and he's going down and we've got a tow board. And he did manage to catch himself on the tow board as he was falling and get himself pulled back up. Cut his arm a little bit, but yeah, I know Osha would not be happy with us. But as he's running sideways on this roof and his feet go out from under him and it's not going to be a peaceful fall, he goes, Woohoo! And so I've got Elijah who in a pretty safe valley goes, like this weird, and Matthew, who while he's literally falling to his death, all he can think to do is go, Woo-hoo-hoo! Like, and that's pretty much how he takes on life. And so I can't think, that's what I think of. I think of Peter having woohoo kind of peace. Like, like laying there the night before his death, oblivious enough to sleep and get undressed for bed. But it begs the question, where does Peter find this kind of peace? Where do you get that kind of peace? Where do you get mellow, you know, what's the, what's the point? I might as well get a good night's sleep kind of peace. And the short answer is obviously from God through his relationship with Jesus. But I think there's another way that Peter feels the peace of God in this story. It says, while Peter was in prison, the church prayed earnestly for him. And I would like to submit, submit that peace does not thrive, or maybe even exist in isolation. Even though Peter is alone in prison, save for the guards that he's chained to, Peter was never by himself. He was never 
alone. The church, there was a church full of people who were not sleeping while Peter was sleeping. They're not in their PJs making angels wait on them while they get dressed. There was a church full of people who, though they were separated from Peter for the night, never left his side. I think peace is best experienced in community. In fact, I think loneliness is maybe the greatest enemy to real peace. Feeling alone, like no one knows what it's like to live under your stress. Like no one cares how hard you work. Like no one cares what you're going through. Like no one would even notice if you rotted in your prison cell or got set free. Like everyone else has it together, but you're always behind. Like, like everybody else is posting Instagram pictures of their coffee and their, and their, their devotional they did that morning and you're drinking it out of a plastic cup that you filled up at Quick Trip as you were getting gas and, and you don't even know where you left your last devotional book. Like nobody gets what it's like to be me. I believe somewhere near the, the bottom of most anxiety, most lack of peace is the feeling of loneliness. Like you're alone in all of your stress. And I don't think Peter felt that. I think Peter slept in the prayers of his church family. I got to know Betty in the hospital. Betty's part of our OFAM. I started visiting her because she was Donnelly's mom. Donnelly asked me to stop by the hospital and pray with her mom. I sat there and chatted with Betty and she was telling she was giving me dirt on Donnelly, so I stayed. Um, but I started visiting Betty pretty regularly and she had one especially serious surgery. So bad that we kind of had to talk. Are you ready to go be with Jesus if this doesn't go well? And, and, uh, and the, the surgery went okay, but there was a fair chance that it wasn't going to. And after Betty had recovered a bit, she was still in the recovery room. She woke up. She was in a lot of pain. She was still critical. Um, and she was fighting for every breath. And Betty said she had pretty much resigned herself to the idea that she wasn't going to make it through this. And she said there was the weirdest moment where she could feel the prayers. That people were praying for. And she said it felt like the prayers were what were lifting and drawing in the breath rather than her own lungs. And she said something about knowing that this isn't on me. I'm being... (laughs) You guys got to pull it together. This is ridiculous. (laughs) That this isn't on me. Somebody else is breathing for me. Um, She said that's when she knew she was going to make it. I think Peter would resonate with that. Peter slept on on a pillow of prayers. And the second he was released, once he came to grips with what had just happened, he could not wait to get back to his people and tell them about it, what God had done. Peter was never alone in this story. Even when he was by himself, I think, I think the reason he had peace was because he knew that his people had him. I'm just going to look at my words because if I look out there, you guys make me a mess. I personally believe the reason we sometimes don't experience the peace of God the way the Bible explains we should is because we so highly value our own independence and individuality. We're so afraid to share our burdens and, and share our lives with people 
that we instead try to weather chaos alone. And it's no wonder we're overwhelmed. Last week, the ladies got together at our house for the fill the freezer evening, and they worked like a bunch of crazy female elves, chopping and scooping and assembling and stirring and and uh, and making a million dirty dishes. And it was an incredible sight to behold. But my favorite part was, uh, and back me up on this guys a little bit, but you know when when wives cook alone, um, there there's a fair number of like really frustrated sounds and 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 uh, and chaos and it it it's a little bit of a storm you know thunderheads waves crashing um when esther's like in that make a meal for somebody and time is involved there's cuss words and flying pans and children run away you guys got to pray for her it's it's a no. i'm kidding seriously though as chaotic as the room got with all these women making food for three different families and a lot of good-sized meals being prepped and packaged, about a million dirty dishes, and the atmosphere in the room was fun and encouraging and, and honestly peaceful in the midst of the chaos. And they were like, we should do this more often. Like, And I mean, everybody's sweating. The house was like a million degrees. The oven's going. Everybody's sweating. Everybody's working and moving. And people are like, this is how we should do this. This is awesome. It's weird to say, but... But peace does not equal calm and quiet. It seemed to me like peace was more easily accessible in that space than in that frenzied room because it wasn't done alone. I don't think real peace happens alone. The whole Eastern Zen separate yourself from everything to find peace is the opposite of biblical peace. Biblical peace happens through genuine engagement, real commitment, and deep connection. And Peter had that. He had all of that. One of the things we tend to miss when we read the book of Acts is the real love and pain and sorrow and joy that they experienced on a regular basis. When Stephen gets stoned, like Luke went on to, like Luke tells us beforehand his reputation and how many people loved him. And if you've ever lost somebody that you're connected to, you know that that was a deep and painful moment in their story. And they and they went on, you know, talking about Jesus and like they lived real lives. These aren't just stories. They experienced all of this. The peace they lived wasn't like an insulated Zen kind of thing. They lived lives fully connected to each other and to loss and to love and distress and everything else that comes with the chaos called biblical peace. I believe Peter was laying in his jail cell, dressed for bed, drifting off to sleep because he knew that his people were praying for him. That everything that could be done was being done. And his fate was now in the hands of the one who loved him so much that he sent his son Jesus for him. Real peace is found in that kind of community. So how do we respond to this? I believe the reason the church exists, in all honesty, and I'm talking about like, this, not just saved people, you know, because that's the real church is saved people. But the reason we do church, the reason that the community of believers who meet regularly and try to live faithfully with each other, the reason it exists is, is for Peter's story this morning. We don't do church on any given Sunday for that Sunday. 
And that doesn't mean God can't do a miracle on any given Sunday. I mean, every single miracle that happens in the Scripture happens on an otherwise ordinary day. <laughs> like, it's, it's a normal day, and then God does something miraculous, and so it becomes a miraculous day. But the reason we get together for church on any given church service isn't for that church service. It's about investing in the community so that it's there when you're in the prison cell. The problem with like consumer Christianity that we have today isn't that it's bad to go to a church with some bells and whistles. That's not a bad thing. The problem is we have this tendency when Sunday morning rolls around to ask ourselves why. Why get up? Why get ourselves dressed? Why drive to a building and sit in an uncomfortable chair and drink coffee out of a tiny little paper cup that leaks half the time? I don't know what's going on with our cups. I mean, what's really going to happen on any given Sunday that's worth going through all that to get to church? And the answer is probably nothing. Odds are, nothing. If you come to church as a consumer, weighing church based on if the music's going to be the kind you like, or if the sermon has anything that you can really apply to your life today, or if your kids have fun. In other words, if you come to church for what it has for you, then you probably miss the point. And it's probably not going to fill much of a void that day. What church is, is it's a space we create so that community can happen. So real relationships can happen. So true family can happen. So that when we're in the prison cell, we can lay down and rest because we know our people have us. We sleep because we know we're with our people. And that's one of the absolute greatest and honestly most underutilized feature of the kingdom of God. The kind of community that brings real peace. And as I said at the beginning of the message, this isn't the sermon that I intended to preach today. I was going to preach the one I wrote last week. But tomorrow morning, Lena starts another round of chemotherapy. That last time she took these exact meds were pretty awful. In short, she's in Peter's story right now. And she knows that, that she's in the cell. And, and so it's our job now to pray. It's our job to gather and carry the load so that Lena can sleep and know some peace. Amen? So what we're going to do this morning um, is we're going to go to the table because the table stands as this symbol, this biblical symbol, this sacrament of the way we gather together as believers. You're, you're, you never take communion, you're served communion. It's something we only do together. All the other sacraments, or all the other Christian disciplines, we pray corporately, we also pray privately. We sing corporately, we also sing quietly, or privately. We study the Scripture corporately, we also study the Scripture privately. But communion we only do when we're together. Communion is one of the things that symbolizes our togetherness. It symbolizes this morning's story. So we're going to gather around the table. And we're going to uh, take communion together. And then we're actually going to bring Lena up and we're going to pray for her. And then we're going to keep praying for her as she goes uh, down this journey.